welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. Step right up, step right up, if you dare. Come and hear horrifying tales of demonic lycanthropy throughout the ages. Stories of cannibalism and murder where the devil himself grants the power to transform into a wolf. That's right. It is Werewolf October, and all month long we will be bringing you tales of lycanthropic barbarity and ghoulish werewolf true crime stories. So buckle up, keep your hands in the ride, and let us enter the world of the werewolf. Ow! Let's begin. Humanity's oldest surviving literary work is the Epic of Gilgamesh, believed to have been written at least 4,000 years ago, long before the Bible or the Torah. In this tale, the gods create a wild man called Inkadu, who is more animal than human. He is covered in hair and runs about on all fours. However, a votaress of the temple in Uruk seduces him, and after seven days and nights of fervent lovemaking, he becomes human. Also in the story, Ishtar, the goddess of sex and violence, falls in love with Gilgamesh, but he spurns her advances because of how she treated a previous suitor, a shepherd named Tammuz, who she transformed into a wolf. So we can see from the dawn of humanity, in the oldest known works of literature, the concept of a man-beast and the transformation of one into a wolf. It seems the werewolf has been with us since the dawn of time. Indeed. The concept of the werewolf, a human transforming into a wolf-like creature, has been a prominent and enduring motif in folklore, mythology, and literature across many, many cultures. In the 5th century BCE, the Greek historian Herodotus describes a tribe in Scythia whose warriors could transform into wolves. And the 2nd century Greek writer Pausonius wrote about secret rituals in Arcadia on Mount Lycaon in ancient Greece, where groups of men would go up to the mountain to a strange shrine dedicated to the god Zeus, and transform into wolves. The mountain Lycaon was named after an old king who was so cruel that Zeus himself came down from Mount Olympus to make him explain himself. While the king's servants fell to their knees and pleaded for mercy, King Lycaon wasn't impressed and set out to test the prowess of this supposed god. The king prepared a great banquet and gave Zeus a most special dish the cooked body of one of the king's own sons. The vicious king wanted to see whether Zeus would eat the flesh of a human, 
Outraged at Lycaon's cannibalism, in a fit of anger, Zeus turned the barbaric king and his court into wolves, who then fled out into the forest. Zeus demanded that a shrine be erected on the site to remind people of the cannibal king and how Zeus had punished him. Zeus then unleashed a flood to drown the entire kingdom of Arcadia, though some were awakened in the night by the howling of wolves. These wolves then led the townsfolk to higher ground and safety. These remaining survivors worshipped Zeus in the form of a wolf and would sometimes engage in ritualistic cannibalism, which would lead them to transform into a wolf for nine years. Pliny the Elder's Naturalis Historia claims one of the winners in a boxing match at the Olympic Games was one of these werewolves from Arcadia and had transformed back into a man after having abstained from human flesh for nine years. The Roman poet Ovid would famously include the story of King Lycaon in the first book of Metamorphoses, where Jupiter would recount the tale as an example of, of how madness and evil rule the earth and that all of humanity should die. And in his version of the story, Ovid really begins the wolfman type image that we still see today, describing a monster, part wolf, part human, when he says, quote, Though he was a wolf, he retained traces of his original shape. The grayness of his hair was the same. His face showed the same violence. His eyes gleamed as before, and he showed the same picture of ferocity, end quote. And it is from the myth of King Lycan that we get the word lycanthrope, which is derived from the Greek word lykos, wolf, and anthropos, man, literally translating into wolfman. The wolf, of course, is integral to the history and culture of Rome, as it was said to be founded by Romulus and Remulus, twin sons of Mars, the god of war. Their mother, Rhea Silvia, was a vestal virgin in a Roman cult and forbidden to bear children. So she abandoned them in a swamp, but they were discovered by a kindly she-wolf who nursed them and raised them. Go to Italy today and you will see statues everywhere of twin infants suckling on a mother wolf. And there are also several references to werewolves in Roman literature. In 35 BC, the famous Roman poet Virgil describes a werewolf named Morris, who uses herbs in order to transform, saying, quote, such herbs are common weeds in Pontus. Often by their sorcery, I have seen Morris turn into a wolf and hide within the woods, and often called forth spirits from their deep dug graves, end quote. Ooh, who knew Virgil could be so spooky? Fifty years later, in the first century, the Roman author Petronius Arbiter wrote the Satyricon. It's a satirical comedy, a work of fiction, that provides a glimpse into the decadent and often bizarre aspects of Roman society during the early imperial period, told in episodes. In one of the episodes in the Satyricon, there is a character named Nisiros, who talks about how he was once traveling with a soldier. And they stopped in a graveyard so the soldier could, well, 
so he could take a crap. <laughs> so Nasiros is sitting there, bored, singing, counting the graves, waiting for his soldier friend to get done, when the soldier suddenly appears out of nowhere, laughing hysterically. The soldier then strips off all of his clothes, urinates in a circle, and transforms into a wolf. Howling, the soldier then scampers away into the forest. Obviously, Nacerous is totally freaked out, so scared that his, quote, breath nearly jumped out my nose. He goes to the clothes to see they've been turned to stone. Terrified and swinging his sword at shadows, Nacerous walks to town. When he arrives at his girlfriend's house, she tells him that a wild wolf had come to the house, killing livestock, spilling blood like a butcher. But the beast has fled after being stabbed in the neck. Nicerous is so freaked out that he can't sleep. And in the morning, he runs away, coming across that pile of clothes again to see that they are now just a puddle of blood. When he gets back home, he finds the soldier there being tended by a doctor for a wound to his neck. The incident puts a serious dent in their friendship because Nacero says he'd rather die than ever eat lunch with him again. While this story is often referred to in the history of lycanthropy, it does not by any means indicate that Romans believed in werewolves. As it's meant to be so absurd and ridiculous, it's funny. Satyricon literally means book of satire. It's really just a silly morality tale about the consequences of showing disrespect to graveyards. Scandinavia had its share of ancient werewolf lore as well. In the Volsunga saga, Sigmund and his son, Sinfiotli, are outlaws who come upon a hut with enchanted wolf skins. Putting on the wolf skins, turns them into werewolves for nine days at a time. Creatures so powerful, Sinfiotli can kill 11 men at once. But wearing the skins makes one so bloodthirsty and savage that Sigmund rips his own son's throat out. Filled with remorse at what he's done, he pleads to the gods for help, and Odin heals his son. Afterwards, the father and son burn the wolf pelts and never transform into werewolves again. Scandinavia also has the Vargamors, witch women who lure men with sexual favors, then feed them to their wolf companions. Vargamors are often said to be protectors, not only of wolves, but of werewolves as well. And while the berserker Viking warriors wore bear coats, and channeled the spirit of the bear as they went wild in battle. They were also the Ufbener, who wore wolf coats, as in the ninth century poem, Ransfosma, which reads, The berserkers bayed, and the wolf coats howled. Wolf coats they are called, those who carry blood-stained swords to battle. They redden spears when they come to slaughter, acting together. As one. And the Swedish writer Olaus Magnus would write in his History of the Goths that werewolves gathered for drinking bouts at Christmas and would forcefully enter houses to raid the wine cellar. 
Christmas would go on to become associated with werewolves in many parts of Europe. There was even a belief that being born on Christmas Day could make one a werewolf. Whether this Christmas aspect is because of the ancient midwinter festivals where Nordic rituals would be performed with berserkers and ulfbonors, or if it's to show that werewolves were so sacrilegious and blasphemous they got drunk on the birthday of Christ, is anybody's guess. Maybe a combination? St. Christopher, the patron saint of travelers. Well, this legendary figure, who many historians actually doubt even existed at all, is often said to have had the head of a wolf. It's said he could only speak by grunting, was incredibly ferocious, and ate human flesh. But when he heard the words of Christ from a missionary, he was changed, and an angel appeared, touching his lips so he could speak all languages. So he went out into the world, preaching the gospel. But According to some tales, especially in Ireland, St. Christopher kept the head of a wolf and was also still prone to eating human flesh from time to time. My kind of saint. (laughs) And then there's St. Augustine, who said in his philosophical and theological treatise, City of God, quote, It is very generally believed that by certain witches' spells and the power of the devil, Men may be changed into wolves, end quote. So we can see the European idea of what a werewolf is taking shape now. It's like all these different folk legends from all over are coming together. Gervaise de Tilboy was an English scholar and cleric in the 12th and 13th centuries who declared, quote, One thing I know to be of daily occurrence among the people of our country is the course of human destiny is such that certain men change into wolves according to the cycles of the moon. In his collection of anecdotes and curiosities, Odia Imperialia, Gervais mentions a knight named Rambo de Poget, who encountered a monstrous creature, a man who had been transformed into a wolf due to his sins. Rambo, being a brave and devout Christian, faced the monster with a crucifix in hand. He made the sign of the cross, and the creature immediately fled from him in fear. But then, the knight himself becomes a werewolf. Crazy, as Gervaisi says, one night, when he was wandering alone like a wild beast through unfrequented woodlands, deranged by extreme fear, Rambo lost his reason and turned into... A wolf. Later, the knight would, quote, lay his clothes under a bush or secluded rock and then roll naked in the sand for a long time until he takes on the shape and veracity of a wolf, gaping for prey with wide open mouth and yawning jaws. In 1275, a woman named Angela de la Barthe confessed under torture to the Inquisition at Toulouse, France, that she had given birth to a creature that was half wolf and half snake, and had fed it human babies she had stolen. In 1425, in Niederhauenstein, Sweden, a woman was sentenced to death for riding with wolves across the night sky. 
This was only the beginning of what would become a phenomenon of witch and werewolf hysteria throughout all of Europe. Europe went werewolf crazy in the Middle Ages, in a large part due to the Christian church's war against heretics and social reformers. In its quest for power, the church was intent on suppressing religious diversity and dissent, as well as eliminate potential political opponents or rivals under the guise of religious heresy. Basically, if you didn't agree with the church, you were a heretic and could be imprisoned or even executed. But what's interesting is, at the same time, there was a huge effort to wipe the wolf out of Europe. There was a culture of fearing and hating wolves in Europe. Often the wolf would be seen eating the dead on the battlefield and was reviled because the wolf was thought to be intelligent and sentient enough to know what it was doing was wrong, but base enough to do it anyway. A true metaphor for the sinner, or one in league with the devil. Chaucer wrote in the Parsons tale that it's, quote, the devil's wolves that strangle the sheep of Jesus Christ, end quote. And in the Bible itself, Jesus warns of false prophets that, quote, come to you in sheep's clothes, but inwardly are rabbiting wolves, end quote. So, priests saw wolves as evil. Shepherds saw them as a danger to their flocks. And the nobles saw them as an affront to civilization. And the king of England imposed an annual tribute of 3,000 wolves on the King of Wales. That's a lot of dead wolves. These two goals, identifying heretics and witches and destroying the European wolf population, seem to have melded into a belief in and deep fear of the werewolf. In the 13th century, the church declared that the transformation into a wolf was the result of a pact with the devil, and to not believe in werewolves was actually heretical. You could be called a heretic just for saying you didn't believe in werewolves. And this was formalized in 1487 with the publication of the infamous Malleus Maleficarum, or Hammer of the Witches, written by Heinrich Kramer and Jacob Sprenger, a guidebook for identifying, prosecuting, and punishing witches. The Malleus stated, Werewolves were in concert with the devil, but more importantly, implied to battle the werewolf brought one closer to God, and to burn the werewolf was to destroy a temple of evil. In France alone, 30,000 people were accused of being werewolves in the 1500s. Hundreds were executed, either hanged or burned at the stake. One of these men was Gilles Garnier, the werewolf of Dole. Gilles Garnier was a reclusive hermit living with his wife outside the town of Dole in the Franche-Comté province in 1573. They lived in poverty and isolation and often didn't have any food and went hungry. During this period, several children went missing or were found dead, and the authorities of the Franche-Comté province believed it was a werewolf that was responsible, and issued an edict encouraging and allowing people to apprehend and kill the monster. One night, a group of traveling workers 
came upon a horrendous sight in the forest. At first, they thought it was a wolf, but when they peered closer in the dim moonlight, they saw it was the hermit with the body of a dead child. The wolf hermit creature then darted off into the dark forest. Soon after, Gilles Garnier was arrested. Gilles confessed to the crimes and to the lycanthropy, explaining that he was in the forest hunting one night, trying to find food for himself and his wife, when a specter appeared before him, offering him an ointment that would allow him to change into the form of a wolf, making it easier to hunt. But the ointment turned him into a bloodthirsty beast with a hunger for human flesh. Garnier then confessed to a year-long murder and cannibalism spree where he stalked and killed at least four children between the ages of 9 and 12, beginning in October of 1572. His first victim was a 10-year-old girl. He dragged her into a vineyard outside of Dole, strangled her, removed her clothes, and ate the flesh from her thighs and arms. When he had had his fill, he cut some meat from the corpse and took it home to his wife. Weeks later, Garnier savagely attacked another girl, biting large chunks of flesh off of her and ripping into her with his bare hands, but was interrupted by passerby and fled. The badly mauled girl died of her injuries a few days later. And in November, Garnier killed a 10-year-old boy, again cannibalizing him eating from his thighs and belly and tearing off a leg to save for later. He strangled another boy, but was interrupted for the second time by a group of passerby and again had to abandon his prey before he could eat from it. He tore a boy in half by biting and tearing into his belly. And in 1573, he strangled a girl, eating the raw flesh from her corpse before tearing off her leg to bring home to his wife. Garnier was found guilty of, quote, crimes of lycanthropy and witchcraft, end quote, and burned at the stake on January 18th, 1574. More than 50 witnesses testified to seeing him attacking and killing children in the fields and vineyards, devouring their raw flesh, sometimes in human shape and sometimes as a loup garou, the French word for werewolf. Then there was the werewolf of Chalons, Nicolas Damont, in 1598. Nicolas was a successful tailor in the city of Chalons. It said the tailor would lure children into his shop with the promise of sugary treats and magical items. Once inside, the tailor would slit their throats and sexually assault the corpses before butchering the bodies, eating them, and hiding the bones in barrels in the shop's cellar. It's said he also roamed the forest at night in the form of a wolf, stalking lost travelers and ripping their throats out, devouring their flesh raw in the forest. Eventually, the missing children drew suspicion, and his cellar was searched. There, they found barrels containing bones and butchered human flesh ready 
for consumption. Nicolas Stamont was sentenced to death for murder, cannibalism, and lycanthropy. He was burned alive at the stake, where it's said that he howled like a wolf, screaming profanity and curses, and called for the devil to take him as he was consumed in flames. But not all the werewolves being put on trial were bad. There was a werewolf trial in Sweden, which showed how werewolves were actually quite benevolent creatures. Thys of Lovania was an old man put on trial for heresy in 1692 in Jugensburg's Swedish Livonia, what is modern-day Latvia. Thys was originally presented to the court as a witness to a robbery, but he shocked the judges by confessing to being a former werewolf who had retired from the activity 10 years ago. Thies said he had been turned into a werewolf when, many years before, he was a beggar, and a rascal toasted him while drinking. This toast turned him into a werewolf, and he could do the same for others by toasting them. Yeah, well, alcohol can definitely turn people into monsters, that's for sure. <laughs> Thies claimed he and several other Livonian werewolves would transform three nights a year, wandering out to local farms where they'd kill livestock and roast it over an open fire. But then, fortified by the meal, they would travel across the sea to hell, where they would chase the devil, taunting him and his witches, and beat them with iron rods. During their visit to hell, the werewolves would then take back all the grain and livestock stolen by the witches over the year. If they failed to do so, that year's harvest would be poor. The prosecution. They tried to force the old man to admit that he had made a pact with the devil, but he refused. He wouldn't budge. Werewolves, according to Thies, were the servants of God. Not knowing what else to do with him, unable to burn him alive because he wouldn't confess to being in league with the devil, the judges had Thies flogged and permanently banished. As werewolf fever gripped Europe, Crazy episodes were carried out, like the story of the werewolf Burgermeister of Anspach in Bavaria. Apparently, once upon a time, there was a very cruel Burgermeister, or mayor, in Anspach, Bavaria, whom everyone feared and despised. When the Burgermeister died, everyone was greatly relieved and happy. However, after his death, a great wolf began to roam the countryside, killing livestock and attacking people, even attacking and eating a few local children, children of people who had spoken out against the Burgermeister when he was alive. Because of this, the town came to believe that the wolf was the vengeful spirit of the Burgermeister, come back as a werewolf. Eventually, the massive wolf was tracked down and killed by hunters. The overjoyed townspeople brought the wolf's body back to the village, dressed it in clothing, put a beard and wig on it, and paraded it through the streets, jeering at it and calling it the Burgermeister. They then took the animal's corpse to the gallows, where it was hanged for all to see as a warning to other werewolves. Oh, man, I love that story so much. Such a good one. And, you know, obviously, writers back then were having a field day with sensational stories. This next story is from a pamphlet printed in 1590 that was the modern-day equivalent to a supernatural, true-crime bestseller. 
It was entitled, get ready for this title, A True Discourse Declaring the Damnable Life and Death of One Stu Peter, a Most Wicked Sorcerer, who in the likeness of a wolf committed many murders, continuing this devilish practice 25 years, killing and devouring men, women, and children, who for the same faucet was taken and executed the 31st of October, last passed in the town of Bedburg near the city of Colin in Germany. <laughs> Is that the title or the whole story? It's just the title, man. <laughs> that is some title. It's some pamphlet. You know, right away, this pamphlet claims that Stu Peter was, quote, from his youth, greatly inclined to evil and the practicing of wicked arts, including necromancy, which means as a little kid, he was trying to reanimate dead bodies. To which I say, where were the parents? Who let this little kid play magic with corpses? Well, when he told the devil whom he had acquainted himself with, as one does, well, he told the devil that he wanted to take the form of a beast to execute men, women, and children. And the devil, well, the devil gave him a magic girdle, which transformed him into a, quote, greedy, devouring wolf. Strong and mighty with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like brands of fire. The sensational pamphlet says he not only used the girdle to kill many innocent people as well as sheep and livestock, but lusted after his own daughter and committed acts of incest with her. It also accuses him of sleeping with his sister and taking on the form of a wolf to attack his own son, saying, quote, he ate the brains out of his son's head as a most savory and dainty, delicious means to staunch his greedy appetite, end quote. That's some good writing right there. I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> when hunters finally tracked the monstrous beast that was terrorizing the village down with dogs, they watched in amazement as, when cornered, the monstrous wolf transformed into a man, Stube Peter. He was brought before magistrates and strapped to the rack. But before the torture even began, he confessed to everything. His daughter and wife were found guilty as well. Peter, as principal malefactor, was first strapped to a wheel, and he had his flesh pull off his bones with red-hot pinchers in ten places. His legs and arms were broken with an axe, and he was beheaded. His carcass was burned with his wife and daughter on Halloween Day, 1589, in the town of Bedber, at least according to this pamphlet. And there's even badass wood carving prints. I'll, I'll post them up on Instagram. Sweet. I want to see those. With the huge success of the Stube Peter pamphlet, it wasn't surprising when a new one popped up entitled The She-Wolves of Julik. Published in a broadsheet by George Cress in 1591, this one was even more wild and sensational, boldly declaring right in the headline the, quote, horrifying and never before heard news of 300 female werewolves who terrorized the Duchy of Hulick after making a pact with the devil. These lycanthropic women transformed into vicious beasts and attacked men, boys, and cattle. According to the broadsheet, 85 of them were apprehended and burnt at the stake in Ostmalik on May 6th, 1591. 
The broadsheet included a woodcut image depicting women and wolves in wild acts of violence, in the center of which two female figures are being burned alive at the stake, accompanied a series of verses outlining the exploits of the she-wolves of Hewlett, which included cannibalism, infanticide, and demonic communion. Of course, the shocking figure of 300 women engaged in diabolical lycanthropy and the additional claim of a mass execution of 85 individuals surpasses even the most exaggerated claims about werewolf trials. There are absolutely no trial records of this ever happening, and the broadsheet doesn't even give a name. Yeah, it appears Cress was just trying to publish an even more gruesome and horrific tale of demonic lycanthropy than the stew Peter pamphlet. The cannibal peasant is replaced by a pack of ravenous women. And while Peter confessed to 16 murders, the Ulick women confessed to 94. And by having the women target tradesmen and butchers, killing livestock and horses as well as men, they are also undermining the city's socioeconomic stability as well as its morality. And if you read on past the headlines, you see the hype is really the equivalent to modern clickbait. Well, we are promised a tale of 300 women. What we get is just the confession of a single woman. The claim that 85 women were put to death is never explained, as the text only tells us that the arrested woman implicated 24 others. And what the actual article says is more of a fairy tale than anything else. It tells of a group of children playing on farmland who find a magical belt. The oldest child puts it on and is immediately transformed into a werewolf. The other children run to the neighbors in fear, begging them to attack the wolf. But the little lycanthrope begs them not to hurt him and explains that his mother has a magical belt and uses it to change into a wolf every night and runs in the forest with other werewolves. The child's mother is then arrested, and she confesses to having consorted with the devil who gave her the magical belt. So it's really a morality paper about the susceptibility of women to satanic influence and a concern over poor parenting, maternity, and domesticity. And some of the magistrates at these werewolf trials that were becoming more and more common, they became very famous as werewolf hunters. Henri Boguet was the Grand Justice of the Franche-Comte. Henry was a well-educated man and an expert on witches and werewolves. He wrote the book, An Examination of Witches, in which he claimed there were witches and werewolves everywhere in France. Between 1589 and 1616, he executed over 600 werewolves, including an entire family. They were the Gandalion family, who were most likely singled out for simply being poor and disliked. The entire family was burned at the stake, including two little girls and an epileptic son. It was rumored that during his epileptic fits and coma-like state afterward, his soul took on the body of a wolf and murdered. Sadly, many accused of being werewolves and burned at the stake were handicapped in one way or another, as well as poor and unable to defend themselves with no legal help. 
Grand Justice Bouguet was a great influence on Justice Pierre de Lancre, who also wrote a book entitled On the Inconsistency of Witches, which was basically an international bestseller. Pierre burned over 700 suspected witches and werewolves at the stake, mostly targeting Basque people. And he would end up presiding over a trial that is said to have been the beginning of the end of the werewolf fever that had taken over France. Yes, the trial of Jean Grenier. A very interesting true crime case from 1603. And now we're getting this information from a retelling of the actual court case at the time by one Sabine Baring Gould. Let's begin. Some girls tending sheep came across a boy of around 13. He had long matted hair that fell down over his shoulders and covered his brow and his eyes, quote, twinkled from an expression of horrible ferocity, end quote. Fangs protruded from his lower lip and his large hands had, quote, nails black and pointed like a bird's talons, end quote. His dirty clothes were in tatters and the girls could see his gaunt limbs poking through. The boy claimed to have been given a wolfskin by a man who lived in a place of, quote, gloom and fire where there are many companions, some seated on iron chairs, burning, burning, others stretched on glowing beds, burning too. Some cast men upon blazing coals, others roast men before fierce flames, others again plunge them into cauldrons of liquid fire, end quote. He goes on to say that he wraps the wolf skin around him and, quote, every Monday, Friday, and Sunday for about an hour at dusk, I am a wolf, a werewolf. I have killed dogs and drunk their blood, but little girls taste better. Their flesh is tender and sweet, their blood rich and warm. I have eaten many a maiden. I am a werewolf. Ha <laughs> ha. If the sun were to set, I would soon fall on you and make a meal of you two. End quote. Several little girls went on to vanish in the area after that. Then, near the village of Saint Antoine de Pizon, a 13 year old girl by the name of Marguerite Poyer was attacked by a wild creature, wolf like, but small and with a boyish quality to it. The creature tore her clothes and left deep, ragged bite marks, but she managed to beat the beast off her with Shepard's staff. She too talked of the werewolf boy, the other girls had mentioned, who bragged of lapping the blood of little girls. The case was taken up by the authorities and brought before the Parliament of Bordeaux. An investigation was made into Jean Grenier, who readily confessed that yes, he was a werewolf. Jean Grenier was the son of a poor laborer in the village of Saint-Antoine-de-Pizan, and he had been wandering about, begging, and working odd jobs. He immediately confessed to being a werewolf and said he hunted children at the command of his master, the Lord of the Forest, who commanded he never cut his left thumbnail. Unlike other werewolves, he attacked on the waning moon after covering himself in the magic oil the devil had given him. Here is some of the actual court testimony. Quote, When I was 10 or 11 years old, my neighbor Duthelaire introduced me 
in the depths of the forest to a M. de la Foriste, a man in black who signed me with his nail, then gave to me and my neighbor a salve and a wolfskin. From that time on, I have run about the country as a wolf. The charge of Marguerite Hoyer is correct. My intention was to have killed and devoured her, but she kept me off with a stick. I have only killed one dog, a white one, and I did not drink its blood. End quote. He then went on to describe how he had crept into a house in a small village and stolen a sleeping infant from its cradle, taken it into the forest and devoured as much of it as he could. He says he murdered a little girl in a black frock in the parish of Saint-Antoine-de-Pizon, tore her apart and ate her. He claimed to have done the same to another little girl by a stone bridge far in the country. In Eperon, he had attacked a dog, but the owner scared him off. He'd also attacked a little boy, but been beaten off the child by a man. These confessions actually lined up perfectly to missing and attacked children in the area. The little boy he confessed to attacking had been saved by his uncle, who testified about it in court. Even the dog's story could be corroborated. But unlike other trials where werewolves were burned at the stake, the president of the court stated that witchcraft, diabolical compact, and bestial transformation were bogus. That lycanthropy was a hallucination caused by, quote, a disorganized brain. Disorganized brain. <laughs> That's me. Must be why I think werewolves are real. <laughs> <laughs> the president of the court went on to say that the tender age of the boy needed to be considered, as well as the fact that he was an, quote, imbecile and, end quote, and, quote, so dull and idiotic that children of seven or eight have more reason, end quote. Instead of death, he was given life imprisonment within the walls of the monastery at Bordeaux, where he, quote, might be instructed in his Christian and moral obligations. Apparently, as soon as he was admitted to the monastery, he leapt off on all fours, running amok, found a bloody pile of animal guts, sunk his face into them, and began to eat. After seven years, they say his mind was incapable of comprehending anything. His sharp teeth still poking from his bottom lip, emaciated, sunken-eyed, unable to make eye contact. He died at just 20 years old. Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows. Which all leads us to the werewolf of Alariz. Manuel Blanco Romasanta, Spain's first known serial killer, also called the Tallow Man, because he rendered the fat of his victims to be made into high-quality soap. Oh, I used to make soap. Goat milk soap from milk from our goats. With lavender and lemon balm we grew. 
all kinds of herbs actually My no wife's no victim's fat though this was not part of the recipe no no victim's fat we use all all uh is all vegetarian <laughs> coconut usually <laughs> and stuff but my wife is uh definitely a witch and i am without a doubt a werewolf so we would definitely have been burned at the stake back in the day <laughs> anyway <laughs> enough of that manuel romasanta was born on november 18th 1809 in rosario spain oddly enough he was originally named manuela as he was thought to be a girl and it wasn't until he was six years old that a doctor discovered he was actually a boy. And the research that I did claims this was because he was just ignored and overlooked. I don't know. That's like a big thing to overlook. I mean, they did use diapers in 1809, right? You would think you'd be looking at the kid, but... Yeah. But he was the youngest of six kids, and there were actually two wars going on simultaneously at the time. The Peninsula War and the War of Spanish Independence. So it, it must have been chaotic. But Manuel, he could read and write quite well, which at the time was rare and showed he must have been raised in somewhat upper class. When Manuel was an early teenager, he stopped growing. He was only four and a half feet tall and would remain that height the rest of his life. But he trained to be a tailor, then moved to Portugal where he found love and married but it was a forlorn and doomed union. They had children, but the children died at a young age. And in 1833, his wife tragically died as well. These tragedies seem to have pushed Manuel into a bad state of mental health. He became nomadic, a traveling vendor, peddling various goods from town to town throughout Spain and Portugal. He also found work as a guide across the mountains to Castile, Asturias and Cantabria, traveling back and forth across the mountains, expanded his trade business as well. But business must not have been going too well, for in 1844, he was in debt to a goods supplier in Ponferrada for 600 reales for products he had purchased to sell. The supplier was not having it and brought a complaint to the constable of Lyon. The constable went to collect the debt from Manuel and was later found dead. Manuel was charged with his murder. A trial was held, but Manuel did not appear. Instead, he fled with a counterfeit passport under the name Antonio Gomez. In his absence, he was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in prison. 10 years for killing a constable. That, I don't, that doesn't seem very long to me. No, it doesn't. Well, Manuel lived on the run for many years in both Spain and Portugal at first in an abandoned shelter in Ermita. During this time, he'd often dress as a woman, and because of his tiny stature and very effeminate looks, he easily passed as a woman and would live that way for extended periods using various aliases. You know, it's interesting, Robert Durst did the same thing when he was on the run for murder, pretending to be a sweet old lady. <laughs> Manuel settled down in the little village of Rebordacheo, where he had various jobs, including yarn making and cooking, helping with the harvest, and he befriended many women villagers. But he continued working as a guide for travelers crossing the mountains, mostly women and children. And many of these travelers disappeared and were never seen again. 
Suspicion of him grew, and at one point he was caught selling the clothing of missing people in the market. He was also selling luxury soaps he had made himself. And in 1852, a complaint was filed in the city of Escalena that claimed Maniel had deceived women and children to travel with him, then murdered them, stole their goods, and turned their body fat into soap he then sold on his trade routes. Ugh. The soaps. You know, Canadian serial killer Robert Picton brought the remains of his victims to a rendering plant, and they were made into soaps, lotions, and shampoos. And I, I often think about it, rubbing lotion on my hands, like, could there be a person in this? <laughs> it's uh, fucking gnarly. I know. Uh, in September of 1852, the law finally caught up with him in Nombella, in the province of Toledo, and he was arrested and charged with 13 counts of murder. He was brought to trial in Alariz. At the trial, Manuel claimed to be, you guessed it, a werewolf. He confessed to everything, but blamed all his crimes on his lycanthropy, saying, quote, The first time I transformed was in the mountains of Corso. I came across two ferocious-looking wolves. I suddenly fell to the ground and began to feel convulsions. I rolled over three times, and a few seconds later, I was a wolf. I was out marauding with the other two for five days until I returned to my own body, the one you see before you today, Your Honor. The other two wolves came with me, who I thought were also wolves, changed into human form. They were from Valencia. One was called Antonio and the other Don Gennaro. They too were cursed. We attacked and ate a number of people because we were hungry. The prosecution then asked him to demonstrate by transforming into a wolf right there on the stand. But Manuel claimed his lycanthropy was caused by a 13-year curse and that the affliction's time period had run its course. Doctors at the time considered lycanthropy a real disease of the mind. I mean, to be clear, they didn't think people actually turned into wolves physically, but instead suffered from a mental illness where the patient believes in their mind that they have transformed into a wolf. Clinical lycanthropy, or zoanthropy as it is often called, is still recognized as a rare and complex psychiatric disorder to this day, with many documented cases. Clinical lycanthropy is classified as a subtype of delusional misidentification syndrome, a group of disorders where individuals misidentify themselves or others as someone or something else. This is also known as species identity disorder or species dysphoria, all subtypes of dissociative identity disorder. But if you thought the doctors in Spain were advanced in their thinking, just because they saw lycanthropy as a mental disorder, you'd be wrong. For though while they recognized lycanthropy as a delusion, they thought it could actually be discovered by phrenology or studying the measurements of the bumps on the skull. Phrenology, or chronoscopia, has obviously been completely discredited and debunked, and, uh, but this is how the doctors examined Emmanuel. They also gave him a visceral examination, which I just assume means they tried to feel his guts and organs by squeezing on his belly. 
And after measuring the bumps on his skull and squeezing his guts, the doctors concluded that he definitely was not suffering from clinical lycanthropy, saying, quote, his inclination to vice is voluntary and not forced. The subject is not insane, dim-witted, or monomaniacal, nor were these conditions achieved while incarcerated. On the contrary, he instead turns out to be a pervert, an accomplished criminal capable of anything, cool and collected and without goodness, but acts with free will, freedom, and knowledge, end quote. But, and this is wild, he was acquitted of four of the murders because forensic evidence showed these victims had in fact been attacked and killed by an actual wolf. But he was found guilty of the nine other murders. The remains of those victims showed they'd been butchered as well most likely in the process of having their fat rendered to make soap from. Manuel was sentenced to death by garroting. They just strangled people to death as a form of execution back then. The prosecutor, Luciano Bastido y Hernáez, became famous from the case and was made a knight of the Royal and Distinguished Order of Charles III of Spain, the most distinguished civil award that could be granted and was appointed to the Supreme Court. And now it gets interesting. This time period is what is called the golden age of hypnotism. And there was a French hypnotist living in London who followed the case in the newspapers. He went by Dr. Phillips, but his real name was Joseph Pierre Durand de Grosse, and he'd been exiled to Britain. This Dr. Phillips wrote to Jose de Castro, the Spanish Minister of Justice, stating that Manuel was suffering from monomania, manifesting itself in the form of lycanthropy, and was not responsible for his actions. He claims that he had successfully treated the same condition through hypnosis and asked that the execution be delayed so he could study the case. The Minister of Justice wrote to Queen Isabella II herself, who personally commuted the death sentence to life imprisonment by royal order. And on the 13th of May, 1854, Blanco was transferred to a prison in Silanova. And try as I might, I cannot find any records of what was discovered when this werewolf was hypnotized. What happens when you hypnotize a werewolf? I want to know so badly. <laughs> I I want to know as well. That's like crazy that it like no record. And there's got to be a record somewhere. I don't know. And things grow hazy at this point, as all prison records have been lost. Locals claim that Manuel died of sickness soon after entering the prison. But there's rumors that he was shot by a guard who wanted to see him transform into a wolf. But some historians believe he died in San Anton Castle in A Caruna while others claim he died of stomach cancer in December 1863 in Ciuda prison. But there are others who believed that he escaped prison by taking on the shape of a wolf. <laughs> there is a book on this case. I want it so badly. It's called Labis Muller by Lea Abril. She's a Spanish photographer. And it's kind of an art book, though there, there is a lot of writing in it, but it's filled with these amazing, beautiful black and white photographs 
that she took of the area the case took place in, as well as some old-timey werewolf art. And it supposedly explores gender roles and sexuality through lycanthropy and is called, quote, an unusual document of a haunting history in which the forces of criminality, sexuality, and social marginalization coalesced into something deadly. Ooh la la. Even as the modern age fell over Europe with psychiatry, hypnotists, and forensic science, there were still accusations of actual lycanthropy popping up, even as late as 1850. This incident took place in the hamlet of Polomia, modern-day Poland. There was a wizened old beggar with a long white beard that lived in the village. His name was Swiatek. The beggar was well-liked, a fixture of the little town, humbly sitting on the stoop of the church every day. One day, he gave a ring to a young orphan girl, telling her to take it to a tall pine tree and recite an incantation, and that if she did so, it would give her the power to find hidden jewels. Most importantly, though, she must go to the forest alone to perform this ritual. The little girl was never seen again. And soon... Other children were disappearing in the pine forest as well. The disappearances were blamed on wolves, and the villagers began to kill any they encountered. Then, a local innkeeper had some of his ducks go missing, but he didn't suspect a wolf. He suspected the old beggar, whom he'd seen creeping around. So the innkeeper stormed over to the beggar's house, and sure enough, he could smell meat cooking as he flung the door to the hovel open and burst inside. Swiatek, in a panic, tried to hide something under his coat, and the innkeeper grabbed him. But it wasn't a duck that fell out of the old beggar's coat. No, it was the decapitated head of a 14-year-old girl. And when the old beggar's home was searched, it was found to contain the skillfully butchered remains of the girl, where organs had been removed and cleaned. A bowl of fresh blood was under the oven, and her limbs were roasting over the fire. Swiatek confessed to having killed and eaten six people, though the number was suspected to be far higher. Apparently, the beggar's taste for human flesh came after a fire killed several people at a tavern, and he went into the remains of the fire and ate some of the roasted flesh. The locals, they all thought he was a werewolf. But before charges of lycanthropy could be brought against him, he hung himself in his jail cell. Well, as the werewolf enters the modern era, we're going to end it for today. But we will be continuing next week, right where we left off, with more tales of werewolf true crime, continuing on right up to our present century, as well as all kinds of other lycanthropic fun. Be sure to join in as we continue Werewolf October. Woo! This is fun, right? I love it. It's great. Such a good, good topic for for a spooky month and a great... It's just the, the intersection between, like, witches and the history of witches and cannibalism and serial killers and werewolves is so interesting. It, right? It really is. It's, it's awesome. And so, yo, my werewolf freaks, we want to hear from you. 
Send us anything werewolf related and fun as well, of course, as cases you'd like to see covered or just say hi to murdercoasterpodcasts at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcasts at gmail.com. Beware of the moon. <laughs>